that he never thinks of others, the text says. It, he, he, the text says he never asks, for whom am I toiling? It's so easy to read that and, and think, oh, he's asking that question because he's empty. No, he never asks it because he's so selfish. He's not toiling for others. He's not trying to secure something for his family. He exhausts himself simply because he doesn't know what else to do. What's that sound like to you? If you have people in your life who struggle with addiction, maybe you have addictive tendencies yourself, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? You recognize that sounds like an addiction, an ever-increasing desire for an ever-decreasing payoff, and you don't really know why you keep doing it, but you can't stop. See, Ecclesiastes shows us here just in these few verses that envy causes an addiction to toil. That addiction leads to an idolatry of work, an idolatry of toil. This lone wolf pours out his life in toil as an offering to his idol of envy, not because it gives him pleasure. The text says it doesn't satisfy him, but like every addict, he admits he's doing it. He's not digging it. Now, this is where I'm supposed to you know, give you principles on how to avoid loneliness in the church, or maybe I'm supposed to send you to farmersonly.com or something. I don't know. But this is about so much more than just being lonely. This is about the heart. This text is about how in this world under the sun tries to convince us what we really need, and that's each other. The world under the sun tries to convince you you don't need each other. But we were made to be together as God's rescued family. But so often what happens is economic pursuits or our envious hearts hinder that. That's one of the reasons we brought back as part of our worship. Let's rejoice to be the community of God. Let's rejoice to be a family so we have each other, we have you greet each other as an act of worship because we're recognizing that God has made us together, that God has saved a we, not just a me. See, unlike this lone wolf, we do need to ask of ourselves, for whom are we toiling and depriving ourselves of pleasure? What are we giving our life to? What has captured our hearts so much that we pour our effort upon its altar? For what do we sacrifice time with others? That little phrase there, verse 8, depriving myself of pleasure. We could actually translate that as grieving my heart, which really gets to the transcendent longing here in this text. His heart is longing for something, and the toil just grieves him. It doesn't work. Toil cannot fulfill our hearts. I remember several years ago when I was a pastor in a different state, I had this young man come into my office who didn't go to our church. But he, was a, he was a Christian, and he was miserable at his current church, and he knew all sorts of theology. He was super articulate, very intelligent, very well read, and he just kept saying, I mean, I, I knew this church. This church wasn't like this, but he kept saying he, just, he never felt like he fit there at that church, and he never felt like he could do enough to really earn God's love. He never felt like he was holy enough or pursuing sanctification enough, and so he always just felt less than, and, and that he wasn't a good Christian. And he wanted to talk about, you know, big picture things. He wanted to come and maybe distract himself by talking to this other pastor about some, let's talk about sanctification, or let's talk about a justification, or let's talk about some other occasions out there. And I, and I was like, you know, we can do that. And if y'all want to do that, I can do that too. So, but I think we should probably talk about this other thing called adoption. And I reminded him that through Jesus Christ's work for us, 
that we're united to Jesus by faith. So that when God looks upon His people, He sees His Son, Jesus. And because of that union with Jesus, we're then adopted as God's very daughters and very sons. And so that, and this is controversial, but I can show you this in the text, only those who have been united to Jesus by faith actually get to look up to heaven and say, Our Father. Because He has adopted you. And I said it. Have you been united to Jesus by faith? He said, yes. I said, have you received him as the resurrected Lord? He said, yes, yes, I've done that. I said, well, then the Bible says you're an adopted son of God. Completely accepted, completely loved. God does not look at your religious performance or any other performance. He looks at Jesus and he sees that you are in union to him. And so he says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe that? And here's where I really appreciated this young guy. He didn't answer immediately. He just stared at me. His brow went all furrowed. And he goes, oh, adoption makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And I was like, yeah, I wanted to grab my Bible and throw it down on the ground, do a dance and stuff. You know, but you don't get many moments like that as a pastor, right? It's like, but I'm a Presbyterian. Someone would throw a flag on that, you know, excessive celebration. So I couldn't do that. But see, we all need to hear that because that kid's not alone, Many of you in this room are right where he was. God doesn't want you toiling in that kind of Christianized envy. Because in the gospel, Jesus toiled for you. See, when we don't believe the gospel, we isolate ourselves. We don't dig into community with other Christians because we doubt our level of religious toil or religious performance. And so our Christian life is frustrated and miserable and alone because we're afraid to let them see how bad we are at this Christianity thing. And they're always so good at it. And they'll, they'll, I feel shamed. I feel less than. I can't dig into the community. Because that voice that whispers in your ear whispers in my ear, you're not a good Christian. No one else struggles with this like you do. You can't tell anybody. They'll never understand. And we believe it. And we toil alone. And it's painful. And it hurts. And our unbelieving neighbors see that isolation and they condemn us. They say along with this text, that is vanity and an unhappy business. Whereas my generation used to say, I ain't got no time for that. I want to remind you real quick of our vision statement. It's on the front of your bulletin. If you want to turn there or you can just hear it, it says, we came up with this, we're a robust church, joyfully united to Jesus, our community, and each other. It's based in the union of Christ. And then the session came up with these four values of fellowship, discipleship, equipping, and missional. And we kind of use those to kind of talk easily of live, grow, thrive, and go. And I'm not going to go through this whole slide, but I want you to notice one thing. Notice how we defined each of those values. Fellowship is growing together in love. Discipleship is growing healthy together. Equipping is becoming emboldened together. Missional is moving outward together. Because this issue of toil leading to isolation means that we as a church have to have core values of we're together. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same Christ. We're all in the same battle. And so these core values are presented as together. Because out there under the sun, there's vanity and frustration and suffering and isolation. But in God's family, there's friends, there's community, there's family 
in Christ. So that's the pain of isolation. Then starting in verses 9 through 12, we see the danger of isolation, or as I like to say, lean on me. So isolation can harm us. This pastor philosopher, what he does is he sets up a very familiar picture for them. When they had to travel, especially overnight, it was dangerous. Paths were were not good. They were precarious. You could fall down into a pit. You got really cold at night in the desert. People rob you. That's why Jesus set up for the good Samaritan where this guy's traveling alone. He's like, whoa, you don't do that. If you're all alone, you're susceptible to all those dangers. But if you have a companion, someone with you who can alleviate a lot of those dangers, it's not as dangerous. Now, this is more than just some practical wisdom. He's like, hey, y'all, if you're going to go on a trip, take a friend. It's much more robust than that. He's talking about our hearts. Notice, whereas before in verse 8, it was there's no end to all his toil. Now in verse 9, with two people, there's a good reward for your toil. Whatever pursuits responsibilities, the activities of life, whatever it is, having a connection to somebody else, companionship, not being isolated makes it better. In fact, we could translate that little phrase from verse 9, a good reward, as of good worth. Or as we would say in our vernacular, it's worth it. The trials, the heartache, the difficulties of life become more worth it when you're not doing it alone. When we resist our envious hearts that say, don't trust anybody else, they wouldn't understand. See, when we rest in the work of Jesus, when we believe that God fully accepts us, we can open ourselves up to others. And when we walk in community, this text tells us it's worth it. I want to zero in now on verse 11. Look at me there at verse 11. What does he say? He says, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So when people traveled, they had, a, they had a cloak, they had no sleeping bags. So what you did is you, you, you stopped at the side of the road and you slept under your cloak. But if there were two of you, what you could do is you'd lay one cloak on the ground, you'd snuggle up together, maybe back to back probably, and then you'd put the other cloak over you and you'd keep warm because your body heat's trapped. Now, again, we read that as modern Western individuals who are like, what's going on here? But let me just tell you, there's nothing inappropriate or untoward happening here. You are reading that into the text. It's not coming out of the text. So stop that, okay? But having said that, there's clearly a bit of intimacy here. This would be, this would be weird if a stranger. And you probably wouldn't be traveling with a total stranger because what if they're going to attack you? So there's a connection here. There is a relationship assumed. See, what, what, what it's trying to help us to see is this, is that if we help each other out, The whole situation is much better than if we go it alone in the toils and trials of life. But see, envy tries to convince us to go it alone, that that's safer, that a good reward, what's worth it is to do it yourself. But instead, this text says, no, what's worth it is for you to see that you need other people, that we need each other, that Christianity is a team sport. You know, the Christian gift of fellowship, it means simply sharing life together. Or as we put it in our key values earlier, it's joining together in love. Fellowship is sharing our sorrows, it's sharing our fears, it's sharing our pains so that together we grow and we thrive. I love that, you know, I I plan these things out, but I'm not that good at planning, Marty can tell you. So the fact that this sermon comes on on a communion 
is a work of the Spirit. I didn't do that. I'm not the organized. And I love it because the word for this in the New Testament is the same word for participation, for fellowship, and for communion. It's all one word because we're coming together to do what? To share in Jesus, to share in each other, to say no to isolation. In fact, taking communion together is a standing up and saying no to our envious hearts, rebuking isolation because we're taking tangible fellowship together in the resurrected Lord Jesus. We're reinforcing that we're on this trip together. We do get a good reward. It's worth it. You know, this sharing together is so great. One of the most fulfilling things about this church, and you guys probably know this, but it's just great for me to tell you this, that the church staff here, we really like each other. We really do, and it's so great. We, we trust each other, and it's so awesome to be on a church staff that like, we can get along because like, I want to sometimes go this direction, and Marty wants to go this direction sometimes, and Becky will pull us this direction, and Mike is everywhere. You know, so we kind of just kind of we come to something better, all of us, and it's so fun to be part of this and to see the Lord working because it's so much better. It's worth it. But stuff like that takes connection. It takes trust. It takes walking a path together that isn't always easy. It takes letting go of envy and trusting in Jesus for your security. When you can open yourself up to them and say, okay, I think we should go this way, but I know I can be blind in this area. What do you think? See, we need those kind of relationships. Because here's the thing about blind spots. You know this about blind spots, right? You can't see them. That's why they're a blind spot, right? You don't know you have blind spots. You just think it's the way things are. You're a hammer and you treat everybody like a nail and you wonder why you have no friends. So someone else can come along and say, well, you know, not, not everybody's a nail. You don't always have to be a hammer. Why don't you try this? Whereas the text would say, if we can't see where we're prone to fall, how can we avoid falling? But as verse 10 says, someone else can come along and say, hey, be careful right there. Because isolation is dangerous. We need a community, the community that's offered to us in the church, the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when the gospel changes us, when we're rooted in the full acceptance of God through the toil of Jesus, we don't have to isolate ourselves because of our envious hearts. That cures our envious hearts because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be free and open with other people. Do you know Jesus like that? Because when you rest in his toil for you, God's complete acceptance of him, you'll be able to thrive as a family in the church. So isolation causes pain. Isolation is dangerous. And finally, we're going to see the failure of isolation in verses 13 through 16, or that's what friends are for. So preachers like to use stories to get points across. One of the reasons we do that is because Jesus did that, and some places in the Bible do that, and this is one of them. This pastor philosopher ends his little section here with a story to illustrate what he's been talking about. And I want you guys to really understand this, so let's all look at the kids' version, if you would, of verses 13 through 16. It's on page 11, or there'll be a slide here for you as well. Here's the story he tells. He says, Once there was a foolish old king who got rid of his friends and was alone. This made a younger and wiser man better than him. Because the young man was wise, he went from being a prisoner to being the king. That young king had tons of people around him to help. He was a great king and very popular. But eventually, even his own great-grandchildren were embarrassed of him. That makes life in this world frustrating. 
like herding cats. Okay, so boys and girls who are still here, not at Children's Church, I want you to think of the Old West. I want you to think about cowboys on horses herding this majestic herd of cattle. Okay? Now I want you to take out the cattle and put in like 80 cats. Can you imagine how frustrating it would be to try to keep a group of 80 cats together for miles and miles on horses, right? I can't do this. That's what he wants you to see here. You do all this good stuff, and even if it works, it's super frustrating. Because here's what's going on. The old king no longer listened to his advisors. He would not let others speak into his life. And so in his isolation, he was surpassed by a youth who was wise, who did not assume he could do it alone. And so instead of being foolishly isolated, he was in community. And because of that, it says, he not only rose from the bottom to become king, but he became a good king, a popular king. And so we see here, isolation brings failure because it was the isolation of the older king that he lost everything, and it was being a community that he raised. But there's so much more profound going on here. I want you to look with me at that last part of the passage, the second half of verse 16. It says this, it says, Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. There's been a common theme in Ecclesiastes from the very beginning about remembrance or being a legacy, being remembered. Remember the pile of rocks thing if you're here for the first couple of sermons? And so what happens is, and I was guilty of this, is that we kind of read the, this and we th- start thinking in those terms of, oh, the, it, the world is frustrating because this young phenom, super popular king, he's just going to be forgotten. But that's not what it says. It says they will not rejoice in him. They remember him. They don't rejoice in him. See, what's happening here, what's going on is this. You can avoid isolation. You can become successful. But you'll still be living under the sun in a frustrating world. This young king achieved everything the lone wolf of verse 8 wanted. He was successful. He had riches. He had fame. He was revered. He had it all. Yet in spite of that, those who came after this guy did not rejoice in him. He should have been celebrated, he should have been emulated, but he was canceled because envy still reigns under the sun. I heard somebody say it like this this week, said, you know, Americans' new hobby is feeling better about themselves by claiming the moral high ground over dead guys. Cancel culture. It's a product of envy, and it's not new. How frustrating is this that cancel culture is so ancient? Ecclesiastes 4.16 actually specifically addresses it. It's not that he will be forgotten. Oh, they remember him. They don't rejoice in him anymore. We can't name that community college after him anymore. We have to change the name. So what's this overall text telling us then? When we see that, what, what, what are we supposed to take from this? But the loneliness of envious toil, what he's been talking about all chapter, this envious toil, even when it works, it's not worth it. It will destroy itself eventually. It will not satisfy your deepest longing. You can be successful. You can make life work, maybe, but your great-grandchildren will be ashamed of you. The isolated toiler of verse 8 was trying to find significance to satisfy his deepest desires. He was willing to suffer to have the kind of success the young king had. And Ecclesiastes shows us even if you get there, there's no lasting significance. 
we can't look to our toil for significance, for meaning, for purpose, to make us feel that we're okay, that we matter. It won't work. All the toil in our life, all the things we pour ourselves out for, try to make ourselves feel important, just leads us to isolation and loneliness. It's not worth it, the text tells us. But there's hope for us because this text is also about the gospel offered to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 14 through 16 really are actually all about Jesus, who himself, what did he do? He rose from poverty to become the most famous teacher in Israel. Jesus was hailed and lauded as the king when he entered into Jerusalem, thronging crowds so thick he could barely get through, proclaiming to him that he's the king. And then a mere four days later, that city turned on him, like the end of verse 16, would not rejoice in him. Instead, they rejected him and murdered him on the cross. In verse 8, there's no end to our envious, isolating toil, but for Jesus, his death was the end of his toil because like in verse 9, he and his father together had a good reward for their toil. Opposite of verse 10, when Jesus fell into the grave, he was not alone, for by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was lifted out of that grave never to die again. And like verse 12, when it looked as if death would prevail against the isolated Jesus on the cross, he surrendered his spirit to his Father. And so the two of them together withstood death, and the threefold cord of the Trinity then broke death in the resurrection. After his resurrection, Jesus claimed kingship over the whole earth when he said, all authority, not some, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And from that throne, he gives his people the grace of the gospel, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that now there's no end to all the people that he leads. And generation upon generation continues to rejoice in him. Because under the sun is striving and vanity, but in Jesus is significance, forgiveness, acceptance, adoption. That's what our envious hearts ultimately thirst for. So it's available to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you again, do you know this Jesus? Let's pray together. My gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word, as we hear from your word, what a glorious thing to see that this ancient text is actually about your son and how his toil has set us free. That we no longer have to be slaves to envy because you set us free. You approve us in Christ. You adopt us in Christ. Call us beloved so we no longer have to perform. Father God, thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would sear this message into our hearts, that those of us who, who know you would grasp on more deeply to the grace you've offered us in Jesus, that we would drink it up, that his toil means we don't have to toil. And Lord, we pray for those here who do not know you, Lord, that, that, that they would have heard the message of life, that they would receive not only forgiveness for their sins, but a rest from all the toil and all the envy, and they would find the life raft that is Jesus and in him be saved. Oh, Lord, would you draw people to yourself even now? 
and build your church that many might confess faith in Jesus. We pray this, Lord, in his great name. Amen.